Okay. I didn't know snowy on your. <laughs> How long have you had snowy? I had that when Brexit happened. I thought I need a stamp of European identity. What's more European than a dog from Brussels? Hey. <laughs> Welcome to Offbook, a podcast from the Young Vic, where we have conversations with creatives who have recently inspired us with their work here. My name is Daniel Delamotte Harrison, and I am so excited to be joined by the playwright, director, and artistic director of the Young Vic, David Land. David, thank you so much for coming in. I'm very happy to be here, Daniel. I'm very happy for you to be here as well. I've got so many questions uh, to ask you. I don't quite know where to begin, but I think we can begin near the beginning, which was in South Africa, and ask about what it was like for you as a young white man growing up in a country where the majority of the population uh, were oppressed? I guess one way of starting to answer that question is to say that the experience of growing up in Cape Town um, in the 50s, 60s, early early 70s, um, has stayed with me, I mean, it's a while ago now, has stayed with me all my life and has probably been, I mean, the other influential things as well, I guess. But I would say it's probably the most influential. It's probably affected the way I've worked uh, subsequently more than anything, more than anything else. Um, Looking back on it, I suppose the significant thing is that I come from a family for whom being in opposition to the state of things in South Africa at the time was absolutely taken for granted assumption. Um, um, My grandparents came from um, the Baltic States. My father's parents from Lithuania. My mother's parents from Latvia and from what's now Belarus, but was then a bit of Russia. and they were very poor people. I mean, they came pretty well as refugees. Well, my father's parents anyway. My mother's parents were a little bit different. But my 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 father's parents uh, came to South Africa with, with, with nothing um, except their skills, such as they were. Um, and identified, to some degree, I don't want to exaggerate this, but identified to some degree with... Um, the political situation in South Africa. I mean, they were they were they were left wing people. They were um, Trotskyists. They weren't um, members of the Communist Party. Um, and the identification with the um, workers of South. I mean, that's the way they saw it. Um, the black people in South Africa were certainly in those days. I mean, it's still the same now, but it's changed a little bit. I mean, class is different in South Africa now to some to some degree. But they identified very strongly with the um, oppression of the working class in South Africa, seeing it in class rather than in racial terms. Um, and that's what I was brought up in, um, the, the labor movement um, or, 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 the you know, uh, as a child, I didn't, wasn't an activist when I was... At the university in in Cape Town, I was involved in student politics, as such as they were, um, resistance to apartheid. It was absolutely taken for granted. It was how one lived. Um, and I suppose the sense of um, responsibility for one's own um, privilege uh, and 
trying to feel what the implications of that are in terms of art, in terms of theatre, in terms of, yeah. I mean, that's always been very powerful for me. So did you feel South African or did you feel like you belonged to a different community? Well, what is South African? What was South African then? I mean, I, I, I am very anti-nationalism. Um, I think a lot of what Albert Einstein said about nationalism, which is that nationalism is an infantile disease like the measles. Um, I, I believe that to be true. So I had never had any sense of being patriotic. Um, I'm not very interested in patriotism. Um, and, but growing up in a country where the state was so intensely authoritarian, um, not to say fascist, um, yeah, it, it was difficult also because there was a certain amount of snobbery about Afrikaans people. Um, I mean, a great deal of snobbery, I should say, about Afrikaans people. Um, and, and we thought of the government as being stupid. I mean, it's always a major political mistake to underestimate the intelligence of one's enemy or one's opposition. I mean, of course, they were highly intelligent people who were just seriously misguided um, about the nature of human experience. Um, so, no, I, you know, I... I, I, I I, I am a South African. I was born in, in that context. I was born in Cape Town. I grew up there. I have a strong uh, attraction to the um, virtues of um, growing up in a amazingly beautiful, I mean, incredibly beautiful city right on the seaside. Um, the sun and the sea, the beach, um, they, they've been very important to me all my life. But I don't feel... But I'm not really, you know, I'm a, I'm a British citizen now. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I love living in, in this country and in London. Um, but I, I'm not a, I'm, I, you know, I don't know. I'm not a patriot. I don't feel, <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel that's what matters. What matters is, is, is people and, and um, the, the social formations, organizations that they live within. Um, Nationalism is um, pernicious nonsense. So your politics then must have made it quite difficult, but not surprising for uh, when you were subscripted into the army. I wonder if there's some sort of parallel universe where you made a go at that. No, I, I, I didn't make a go of it. I was a total failure. Um, no, I mean, everybody was, uh, almost all seven white 17-year-olds um, were conscripted into the, into the army. There was no option. Um, and the deal was that you did, uh, when I was 17, nine months, it was nine months training, and then you could be, you were liable to be called up in for camps for the next 20 years. I just felt, I can't do that. I can't do that. Um, I mean, I thought about it a lot over the years, and if it had been an army fighting a war that I believed in, you know, we read a lot about, Socialist left-wing people who are anti-militarist, um, but who fought in the Second World War or fought in Spain in the 30s, or um, because that was what was needed. Um, I don't know uh, what I'd have done in those circumstances, but um, but 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 joining the South African, I I can do it, and I I don't want to take up a lot of time talking about it now, but. Um, um, but I didn't. Um, I mean, I was I was called up, and after about 
six weeks, I think it was, um, they went, oh, listen, just get the fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, and I, my, my military career was very short. So why did you come to the UK? Uh, well, I came for a number of reasons. Um, I, I, I worked in theatre since I was really young um, in various ways. Um, it was just the thing I wanted to do when I was a kid. I wanted to be an actor, but um, I mean, any any way of getting involved in in theatre was attractive to me. I I, I worked uh, when I was at school. I worked at, at uh, the again, it's a long story, but at the university, Capeland University, was open to um, anybody, um, black people, people from Asia, whatever. Um, unlike the rest of the country, which was um, divided on. Racial uh, and I there was a theatre on the university campus which was open. Anybody could go to it, and there were a certain number, a small percentage, with a certain number of students at the university. Not why. And I worked in the um, workshop at the theatre um, as a kid. I wanted I, I worked for the public company. I wanted to, I wanted to work in theatre. At the time I was growing up, um, London seemed to be the centre of the universe as far as theatre was concerned. Whether it really was or not, I don't know. But I used to read Plays and Players when it came out every month, and I, I could still tell you. Um, I can still remember what was playing in London theatres in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and so I'm wondering, if you want to work in theatre, you go, if you're any good, or if you want to, if you want to discover whether you're any good, um, the place to go to was London. So that was one reason. Another reason um, was I ha was already in... Um, um, what's been a central relationship of my life, which is with my boyfriend, um, Nick Wright. And um, Nick was living and working in London. And um, coming to live with Nick was um, a big part of why I came to London. But before all of that theatre stuff really got going, you were a social anthropologist and you spent two years in Zimbabwe studying um, gorillas and, and spirit mediums. Did, has any of that time sort of informed your work in theatre? Do you ever look back at that time and go, oh, that's why I've made this decision in the art that I uh, programme or, or the w art that I make? The couple of years I had in Zimbabwe, I mean, I, I, had, I had some time in London first writing. I started writing plays. I'm in my early 20s, and the Royal Court picked them up, and I had some place down and a couple of other theatres as well, and so on. And then I, 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 I decided I wanted to do anthropology, as you say, and I, for a while I was doing both. Yeah, I, and then I had two years in, in, in Zimbabwe, 80, 81, 82. Yeah, I mean, it's, that was incredibly powerful and, um, and, for me, influential. Part of my life, um, very much, I mean, partly because of some experiences I had living in the bush, in the countryside, um, at a time when, um, just after the end of a very, uh, very nasty, violent um, war, um, and the countryside was very turbulent, um, and I had various experiences there which have stayed with me and have been very powerful for me in um, the work I've done subsequently, um, just in terms of how you get things to happen, um, I suppose, nature of power. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, living with people who are really, I mean, uh, very, very, very poor people. I mean, amongst the poorest people on the planet. Um, anyway, in a, in, a, in, a, in a very tough part of the country. And, and then in the particular circumstances that pe where I was, the people had, had, had spent a couple of years in, uh, effectively in concentration camps. They'd been taken out of their villages, the village had been destroyed, they'd been put in camps in order to stop them supporting the guerrillas. It didn't work, of course. And the guerrillas ultimately took power, or one 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 of the guerrilla armies did. Um, but living with these people, you know, I mean, there were no other people like me um, 
there at all at that time um or even now, I mean, it's still um, it's it, it, the circumstances are better now than they were when I when I was there. But it's still it still um, feels like the edge of the universe. Um, but did, it was, they, did, did mm. they embrace you, or, or or were they sort of who is this guy? Who is this guy that's following us about? Well, I was there a long time. I mean, two years is quite a long time. So yeah, there was a long time of, of who the hell is this guy? <laughs> um, you know, um, uh, from the beginning, people were welcoming. Um, I mean, if a white person turns up, a white person with resource turns up, then uh, um, most people don't have resource. You become, I mean, what people immediately start to work out is how can they use you? How can they use what you've got? How can they get what you've got? I mean, one way is by stealing from you, but nobody ever did that, um, or not in any significant way. Um, so, you know, because they're good, decent um, people, and but then they try to create a relationship, which is, advantageous to them in some way, um, which is correct. Um, absolutely correct thing to do. Um, but quite quickly, okay, I mean, I don't, I don't know how much interesting this really is, Dana, but the thing that I worked out after a short period of time is that what I needed to demonstrate, if I could, was that I wasn't like the white people that they knew because the only relationship that most people that they had with white people were, were um, in terms of power and white people always in power had power as employers or or as uh, military people or as police or whatever so I used to work in the fields I worked in other people's fields um, cotton fields and maize fields um, and I and I got to know people that way and I just used to I spent day after day week after week um, planting cotton and um, weeding maize um, and uh, people realized I was a bit weird um, <laughs> And I got interested in why. And then I uh, created or, or, or was given a relationship with a particular family there who, over the time I was there, I was very close to. And I'm still in touch. I mean, 30 years later, I'm still in touch with a couple of a, a couple of people from that from that time. Um, but I lived very cl- I mean, I quite quickly began to live very closely with a particular family. And um, and, um, and, and, and and through them created closer, more intimate, more ordinary relationships, I suppose, with with many of the other people there. And I want to ask you about the theatre scene in London in that time and how it compares to the theatre scene today and what changes you've noticed in the space of that almost 30 years. One thing, there's a lot more theatre. Um, now, you know, there are so many um, small-scale theatres which are uh, independent, uh, independently funded, one way or another. That's one big thing. Um, also, the National Theatre. Oh, you know, I remember when the National Theatre. Oh God, it's so sorry, just tedious old memoirs of a boring <laughs> old person. But I, I, I remember. I remember. Um, I remember when uh, the National Theatre moved from the Old Vic to the, you know, and uh, to the to the new building on the South Bank. Um, and it was a new thing, and what Peter Hall was trying to do there was a new thing. Um, um, in a way, you know, now uh, uh, an organisation that has history is different from an organisation that's inventing itself as it as it goes along, neither better nor worse, but but different. Um, and the opposition to the National Theatre. I mean, I was um, there was there there were, there were a lot of theatre buildings or, 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 or physical theatres above pubs or whatever, but a lot of um, theatre companies, um, political theatre companies um, that I knew that I was involved in, that I had friends in. Um, 
and 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 how strongly people felt against the amount of resource that went into the National Theatre and so on. There was something called the Theatre Writers Union that um, that was set up in as not in opposition to, but but um, as an alternative, as a sort of politically um, um, motivated. Um, Lobbying group to some extent, but also meeting place uh, for writers on the left um, who weren't part of the Writers Guild, which seemed to us rather sort of stuffy and old fashioned. And I was part of the group that set that up in God knows when, for a long time ago. Um, so, you know, there was a, a, a degree of political activism and engagement. And it's different, you know, it's different now, not to say it's less political, it's political in different ways, I suppose. There's lots more theatre. Is that necessarily a good thing, though, this this huge amount of theatres that we see in this city? Yeah, it's a good thing. Um, I mean, theatre is one of the ways that we have inherited from the past in which we talk to each other about the things that matter to us. Um, and so the more of that that goes on, the better. Um, um, so, yeah, the more theatre, the more theatre, the better. I mean, the more art, the better uh, art or should be everywhere. I mean, whether we're talking about um, urban design or um, architecture or um, design, industrial design, or, or whether we're talking about um, painting or sculpture or music, or um, we, you know, the the way we live in our capitalist system is to make a very strong distinction between art as something which is separate from life um, and it is to some degree how we live um, it's not really how we live we just don't always acknowledge where art is in our lives um, whether whether people are earning a living from it or whether they're doing it because making it or whatever they're doing dancing whatever they're doing um, because it's an expression of who they are which they feel is important um, but really art and, and life are should be the same um, I, I somebody somebody uh, talked to me once some years ago. Somebody we were working with here at the Young Vic about you know uh, we're, uh, we entertainment. I, I I hate thinking about theatre as entertainment. Um, I, I you know to all the entertainment industries. Yeah yeah okay fine go and be entertained if you want to be entertained. <laughs> I'm not giving my life to being you know to creating entertainment. Um, I, um, you won't find entertainment here. Um, no no no. Um, it's just that's not a helpful way. I just don't think that people's lives should be, I'm very bored at work, but so I'll go out and find something entertaining to do in the evening. That just feels uh, retrogressive to me. Um, and, 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 if we're, and if we're, you know, just cheering people up after a hard day at work or whatever, then uh, that's, not a, that's not a social value. Uh, Dare I say it, David, that sounds quite Marxist, that sort of opium of the people. Why do you say that as if... You need, well, why do you preface that by saying dare I say that? <laughs> well, as if as if Marxism were... Um, it's coming back into vogue, you're right. I've, I, I've been reading Marx all my life. Um, I mean, particularly, I mean, I talked at the beginning of this about the political um, context that I was born into. Um, I, I this, this whole thing about, ooh, Marx, oh, you can't talk about that. It's, it's pernicious. It's, it's, you know, this major... Uh, you know, one of the few really major uh, thinkers about the nature of human society of the last 150 years 
Um, and there's sort of thing, ooh, you can't talk about Marx, or you, um, you can't get public money if you're a Marxist. It's just absolute rubbish. Um, um, it, not to say there aren't other major, major... I mean, the other person I'm particularly interested in is Keynes, Maynard Keynes, who's a sort of genius thinker. Um, um, and, you know, and obviously not a Marxist, uh, came from a different perspective, but... Um, yeah, um, what do you mean? Open to the people. I mean, it's religion that's supposed to be open to the people, isn't it? Not, um, not, not pantomime. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I do think you know that what we're after in 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 in, in the in the world of publicly supported art is um, what we should be thinking about is the totality of people's lives and experience, and um, not just what you do between knocking off work and going to sleep. David, we've spoken for. Um, some time, but we've not yet mentioned this place, the uh, Young Vic. Uh, I am interested in knowing what this place was like in the year 2000 when you took over, what you saw of the building, what you wanted it to become, and what you thought it had the potential to become. Um, when I took over in 2000, um, there were two very powerful things here. One was the auditorium, uh, which is a, which is a sort of genius uh, idea. Um, it's also a very political idea. The, the the way the auditorium was designed was intended to make a change to the society that it was imagined within in the late sixties, early seventies, um, and 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 it's very effective in that way. It's an egalitarian space, um, and I and I um, I, I directed here. I'd, I'd written the adaptation of a show that was done here, and I'd seen I'd seen quite a lot of work here, but I'd worked here twice um, before that, so I knew the space to some to some extent. So there was that, but the, the other thing was was this idea that was already in the Young Vic, um, and as a consequence of the thinking that had been done mostly by Sue Amos um, in the uh, f- five or six seven years um, that Tim Supple was artistic director here. Um, and that was to do with the imagined relationship between theatre and audience. Um, and I, and you know, I mean, a lot of things we've been doing ever since I've been here were already here. Um, the funded ticket scheme, um, 10% of the tickets free to targeted audiences. Um, but many, many ideas as, as well that Sue uh, invented and championed. and. One of the things I, that that persuaded me um, to apply for the job here was that sense of engagement with um, society, uh, neighbourhood, um, that was already here, and and uh, I was very interested in that. And I thought um, that's the kind of ideas about theatre that I would be interested in being part of. The building itself uh, was terrible and was falling down. Um, I mean, it's literally falling down. The rain got through the roof onto one famous night. The rain got through this roof in the theatre onto the um, onto the um, lighting board um, and fused it and so on. I mean, but but it had been built very, 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 very cheaply, and there was no proper. I mean, there was no networking. For example, they they tried networking and I mean, internet uh, networking and didn't work. They thought, oh, we'll give that up. Um, we won't do that. Um, it was very cold in the winter. It was very hot. It was a horrible place to work. Um, so the building itself wasn't great, apart from the auditorium, which was the potential of the auditorium was brilliant. 
Um, but it was the idea of the place um, that was that was uh, alive and attractive. So you've got this idea and this ethos of what this theatre should be, but you don't have a building which facilitates that idea. So you have the idea that we need a rebuild. No, I was hired to get it rebuilt. Um, the job that I was offered um, was uh, run the company and get the building rebuilt. It was it was that was there from the beginning. Um, two or three years before I joined. Um, there had been some work done on a new building that hired an architect who'd come up with a plan, uh, which was a v very beautiful um, plan, but um, completely wrong for um, a theatre, I would say, or this theatre. Um, and the board of the time had recognised it wasn't really there and really got the idea and, they'd, and it had um, stopped, the, the work had stopped. But, but if we hadn't rebuilt the council would have closed the building down. I mean, it, it was threatened with closure a number of times um, and only kept open because we go, oh, look, we'll definitely um, um, change the plug on that. <laughs> um, so nobody will get electrocuted. Um, I mean, it was it was very, very, very close to the um, to the edge. So um, getting getting a, the rebuild to happen was part of the job that I was given. So there was a real risk that this building would just no longer exist, that the Young Vic would collapse almost? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the thing I I, I didn't understand a lot about how things worked. I remember <clears throat> I, as part of my prep, I, I called the Arts Council and, and found out and talked to the person who was the uh, officer at the Arts Council who dealt with the Young Vic and asked a completely naive question like, oh, how's your relationship with the Young Vic? Oh, very good, they said. Oh, good, I said. Goodbye. Um, <laughs> um, years later, after we'd rebuilt, a guy who I'd gotten over very well, actually, um, who uh, was senior in, the, in running the couple projects, the redevelopment, the building projects that the Arts Council said to me, um, he said, um, before we started, in, in, we got going in about 2001, um, he said uh, unforgettable words to me. If a, if a bulldozer had gone down the cut and destroyed the Young Vic, nobody at the Arts Council would have shed a tear. Uh, that's what he said. Gosh, how did that um, make you feel? Well, I was glad he didn't tell me that before we got going. <laughs> uh, because total ignorance and naivete can be quite useful in those circumstances. I didn't I didn't know that. But I also remember the day a friend of mine um, called me. I remember, it's funny, it's one of those things, I remember exactly where I was when I got the phone call. Who said, and he said, look, the Arts Council has a list of priority theatres and you are not on it. I, I thought, oh, maybe that means there's a list of high-priority theatres, <laughs> and we're on that one. I mean, it took a while to go, oh, actually, they they don't... See, I mean, they, they'd already committed to rebuilding the Royal Court, and um, I think uh, the Lyric was already... and Hampstead was already... and so on. And clearly, they'd taken a decision not to do the Young Vic. But the reason for that, principally, was that the strength of the auditorium had been forgotten for various reasons. Um, most of the work that was done in our auditorium was 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 to tour, was touring work uh, coming in from the touring companies, Royal Shakespeare Company, what was called Oxford Touring Company, what was called Cambridge Touring Company and so on. And that work was, used the auditorium in the least interesting way. 
And my understanding is the Arts Council went, we don't need that building. Those touring companies can go to the new Royal Court, where we're rebuilding, can go to Lyric when we finished that and so on. We don't need this building. Um, what's it for? We don't get it. So one of the things, but I worked that out quite quickly. And one of the, one of the ways of thinking, in, it's very early days, um, 2000, 2001, uh, very early, you sort of work out, okay, I have to, one of the things I have to do is I have to make the case for this auditorium by using it in the most adventurous ways. So from the word go, I encourage directors and designers to do the most unexpected things in that auditorium. I would say to people, come into this building, but imagine nobody's ever done a show here before. How would you use it? Where would you put the stage? I've been saying that for the last 20 years. Um, because this building has the capacity to do that, but it had been forgotten. Um, and, you know, quite quickly people got the point um, that the work you can make here uh, at the Young Vic, uh, you can't really make anywhere else because, I mean, it has a disadvantage because quite often we wanted to move work from here to other theatres and then it's a little bit more difficult. I mean, we've done that. We have done that many, many times over the years. Um, but it's not, you know, an easy move, like from the Royal Court to a, uh, a commercial theatre in the West End. But it sounds like that part of the reason why you are pushing directors to make more daring work, more interesting work, and in a more visual way, in, in sort of really um, using the auditorium, was to show the Arts Council that this is why the Young Vic is special. Yeah, not not just the Arts Council. I mean, that was that was one of the reasons. But but uh, that was. I hope that was one of the effects of the way in which we worked here. But really we worked that way because it was fun. You know, it was, you know, obviously you'd do it. Why wouldn't you do it? Um, the whole ethos of this theatre, I think, comes from that. I mean, there's one other thing that comes from this as well, which I'll say in a moment. But it comes from needing to work with the most radically imaginative people, directors, designers, actors, writers, um, and then always trying to say yes to whatever they came up with. I mean, the, what we established quite early on is that our default response would be yes. Yes, yes, we can do that. Yes, we will find a way to do that. The, what it meant for me is I had to say, and I will find the resource for that. I will find, I, David, artistic director, CEO, I undertake, I will take the responsibility for finding whatever you need, as far as I can. I mean, sometimes I couldn't. But on the whole, you can, because the other thing it, it did is it, it, it meant, because we didn't have very much money at the time, we had very little money at the, t at the time, um, and, we very, and we needed to be ambitious in the way that we worked, uh, I, I started um, creating relationships with other theatres. I mean, we started co-producing all over the place, National Theatre Studio for, uh, uh, I think, three shows we did with them. Um, uh, one of which was the first large-scale production by a young director called Rufus Norris. Um, <laughs> another one was a, a show that then went into the West End, directed by Josette Bushelminger. Um, but but you just go, okay, what you look for is mutual advantage. Who is the question I would ask myself all the time? Is, is there somebody else who, if they work with me on what I want to do, will also benefit from that? Um, how, do we, how do we find you know mutual benefit? Uh, and we started co-producing all over the place in, in this country um, with other theatres around the country, but also then, um, I mean, I think the first one we did was with a theatre company in Reykjavik. 
uh, the first uh, European, and then we started working in France, then in Germany, and in South Africa, and in Brazil, all over the place, in, in, in America to some extent. But but the the energy for that came from the need to find partners in order to have the resource to do the crazy things that I wanted to do because, as I say, it's more enjoyable, it's fun, it's interesting. I mean, it's you feel alive um, working in that way, but also, as you say, to to make the case for the auditorium, but also for, you know, what we're trying to do. And then linked to that, running through all that, was the um, ideas about uh, commitment to our neighbourhood, people who wouldn't generally think of theatre as being part of their lives. Um, And you pull all those things together and you start getting a bit of energy going. Let's, let's talk about those collaborations then and co-productions because this theatre now is known for its um, openness and generosity with partners and colleagues across Europe. Do you think that that is the way to break out of this kind of Little England mindset that perhaps people have or this kind of um, view that British theatre, London theatre is the best theatre in the world? How do we break out of that? Look, a lot of London theatre is the best theatre in the world, but, but it, I mean, there is fantastic and wonderful work done here, but the, the idea of London being having the best theatre in the world is sort of marketing, and believing your own marketing is always a bit of a mistake. Um, and, and it's not until you've seen work in Berlin, Warsaw, um, Paris, Munich, um, Sao Paulo, uh, New York, um, Moscow, what? Cape Town. Cape Town, if you like, um, that you're in a position to say London theatre is the best in the world. If all you've ever seen is London, then you're not in a position to say that. Um, um, The, you know, I mean, the really interesting thing about travelling around, I mean, it it started in, I suppose, 15 years ago, I don't know. Um, Being in Paris, um, seeing shows in, in, in Paris or in Berlin and, and wanting that work or wanting somehow to find a way is, and people say, you know, nobody nobody talks to us. The Royal Court have a long-standing relationship with the Schaubühne in Berlin. Um, and, you know, there are other, um, Birmingham has a relationship with, a, or, or had, I don't know if they still do, with Calixto Vieto, um, so a really brilliant um, director from uh, Barcelona, from, uh, from Spain. Um, there are, there are, and of course, there's been the international program at the Barbican, which is a, which is by and large presenting work from other places. But actually, going and saying, I want to find people I can work with that we can work with. People just said nobody's nobody nobody talks to us. There isn't. You can, I don't get it. I don't. I I just don't understand that. Um, in in dance, in every dance company thinks internationally. Um, in music, of course, in the fine arts. Now, every major exhibition in London, most major exhibitions in London are partnerships with the Prado in in, um, in um, Madrid, with um, MoMA in New York, um, and so on and so on. Um, uh, and you can say, I mean, people say, well, that's because there aren't words. You don't have the problem of language. But um, the, it's not a language is not a, a, a problem. Language is, a, is a, a means of communication. You can, you know, you can find your way around that. But but I mean, so so yes. I mean, is there a way of breaking out of our um, Brexit obsessed time? Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. The, the the relationships that we've had in 
Europe, and which will change, and they'll be with different people um, in the future. But I hope they'll continue, or with um, telecompanies in in the U.S. or or wherever. Um, it's it's. I was about to say it's tremendously important. It is, of course it is important, but it should be a natural, obvious, active friendship with uh, artists uh, across the world. But to talk selfishly for a moment, this theatre and this theatre's relationship and your the- and your relationship with Peter Brook, Eva van Hove, the Esango Ensemble, that must be something that you're very proud of over your time here. No, I never feel, I, you know, I, 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 I mean, if you use that phrase, I always feel uncomfortable with that phrase. I don't really know what it means. Um, uh, am I pleased to have had those relationships? Well, yes. I mean, the relationship with Peter Brook went back um, before I started working here. I first worked with Peter and they completely different capacity. I can't remember, 25, 30 years ago. Um, so that in my first season, um, when I heard Peter was doing the show called Le Costume in Paris, I went to see it, and I talked to them about c- coming to the Young Vic. He'd actually been to the Young Vic before and liked the theatre, knew the theatre. Um, it was an absolutely sort of obvious thing to do. The Arts Council actually was supportive of that. Uh, the Arts Council, I mean, they, they got... Um, Sean Alexander, who now is the exec director at the Lyric Hammersmith, was head of London Theatre, and Sean absolutely got what I was trying to do. Um, and and actually, that visit from that first visit, uh, visit from Peter Brook, um, they they helped with because I couldn't afford it, and and they they found us a bit of dosh at the back of a <laughs> drawer somewhere um, to help us to help us bring that. They 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 saw what we were trying to do, and they've. Uh, I've always had a very good um, relationship with with the Arts Council and um, and the various people that have led it. Um, um, am I proud of it? I don't know. I'm very pleased we did it because the. I mean, Evo. I mean, I was. We had a show at the Vienna Festival one year. Um, uh, uh, I think it was the year we had uh, production by Luke Bondi in the Vienna Festival, and I, I and I the show opened, and I had a day to see other things and somebody told me about this show called The Roman Tragedies and I went to see it and I didn't know Evo's work I should have done but I didn't and I saw that and I went okay I want that I want I, you know that, I love that show but the show's too big for us um, and I, I got to know I don't know I can't remember how I met him but I got to I emailed him I don't know did the obvious thing <laughs> got his phone number and it took a couple of years and many meetings and you know it's, but it was or Bernard Andrews or um Luke Bondi, actually, just knowing Luke's work. And from Luke, we got to Patricia. Actually, um, from Luke, we got to Patricia Rowe. I think the reason Evo took us seriously was because of Patrice, because Patrice was his great artistic hero. And he traveled wherever there was a new uh, Patricia Rowe show, uh, Evo would go and see it. And I think the fact that we'd had that, that show had been here made him think, oh, all right, okay, um, they must know something about producing. So one thing led to, to, to another. To another, but there were always, there were always friendships. It was always I've always tried to work on the basis of friendship. I can't work with somebody if if I don't like them. What <laughs> what <laughs> <laughs> level? But you, uh, you know, you make you find a way to make somebody a friend, and then you can and then you can start. And those eighteen years, almost eighteen years that you have been here, eighteen, eighteen. <laughs> I start. Hey, same what's age the as me. Today? <laughs> uh, yeah. um, I'm joking. Um, hang on. The date today is the it is twelfth. The twelfth. It's the twelfth. I started at the Young Vic on the twelfth of January. Oh my God! Two thousand. So there you go. It's exactly eighteen, 18 years it's today. Exa- it's Happy eighteen years today. Anniversary. Hey, Happy thank anniversary. You. There you go. In those eighteen years today, oh, has right. anything surprised you? 
anything happen that you weren't expecting that to happen or, I didn't or expect the journey? Any of it. I didn't expect any of it, Daniel. I really, really didn't expect any of it. I just, uh, I, I thought I'm surprised. Did you think you'd be here for 18 years? No, of course I didn't. I mean, of course I didn't. Um, um, I had no idea. I mean, I was very fortunate in that I'd worked. I'd never run a theatre before. I'd never run anything before. Um, I'd never had a proper job before. I'd never had a full-time job before. And the closest I'd come is running, is is directing a little bit um, uh, television. Uh, I mean, I'd direct a little bit in the theatre, but I hadn't directed very much in the theatre. But, but the closest had been running a, um, uh, a, 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 um, a documentary film uh, team, um, but I mean, you know, those films cost a hundred thousand pounds or one hundred fifty thousand pounds, and suddenly I was running something that had a turnover of, of uh, in those days, I don't know, a couple of million, a uh, million and a half, something like that, a couple of million. Um, no, I, I had no, I had no idea at all. I remember meeting very early on um, after when I was offered the job, and the and the board, the the people who were negotiating the deal with me, said, "So how does it work?" <laughs> um, should you have a three-year contract or a five-year contract? <laughs> or what do you think it should be? And I said, um, do we need a certain end date? And they went, uh, oh, all right. Um, we won't do that, man. And I've, I've, I've been on open contract all, all the time, which is which I've always was a good thing until quite recently when I thought mm, maybe it wasn't such a good thing. Because <laughs> maybe it's good to have a period when you go, oh, do I really want to go? I mean, I've always wanted to go on doing that. But um, so, I mean, the whole thing has been... I guess the part of your question I'm trying to answer is, um, did I think I would still be here 18 years later? No, I, I I didn't. But I had no. I had no idea of. You know, you just do the next thing there is to do. Maybe artistic director should have a fixed term, like the president of the United States. Well, I mean, the fixed term of the president of the United, the current president of the United States, <laughs> should be about 20 minutes. Um, <laughs> Four more years of David Land. That's what uh, we said. <laughs> no. Um, so is that a piece of advice you'd give future artistic directors then that sort of go with it, that you can't really plan too methodically X, Y, Z years in advance? You just need to see what's going to happen, work with people you like, form these relationships? Um, I, 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 I don't really think I've, I've got advice quite of that kind to give because, um, because everybody's different, working in different circumstances. I mean, I talk to a lot of people. A lot of people come and ask me for, quote, advice, unquote. And um, I don't know, you just say what you would, what you think in those very particular circumstances. I tell you what I do think, though, is that um, one of the things I've learned is the way, I mean, I knew this intellectually beforehand, but it's very interesting to watch the way in which um, what is fluid tends to solidify. <laughs> um, people get a sense of, oh, uh, this is the way we do things. Um, and and consequently, this is the way we should always do things. And there are aspects of that which are valuable. I mean, I think having, for example, built into our thinking that our default response to artists is yes, is a good thing. And I, talk, I try to talk about that a lot in order to remind people uh, of that. But I guess you, the thing about is you've got to somehow keep it. It's got to be alive. It's got to change all the time. It's got to respond to the need of the, the people. I mean, it's I, I, one, one of the great things about the way in which the Young Vic was rebuilt was that there's a very, there's potentially a very close relationship between the people who are from an executive or administrative perspective making the work and the artists who are making the work. 
you, we bump into each other all the time. We share a lot. Um, the cafe downstairs is very open, and people see each other meet there. Um, if you're in a bigger building, then the separation between those things uh, b- becomes oh inevitable unless you really put the work in. Um, keeping it, keeping people's focus on what are we, what are we really trying to do? What really matters? And maybe the only thing that really matters is what happens in the, you know, in the room, at when in in what's created between the audience and the and the artist, and trying to keep that absolutely clear and alive and um, and and to lead from that perspective. Um, if if anybody asks me for any advice, that's what I try to emphasise. That um, default of saying yes to, or to trying to say yes. Do you think that there's a risk that that might create a runaway train or burnout? Well, I mean, uh, uh, okay. Simple answer: No, no. I mean, if anything, it's energising. No, it's the opposite of burnout. Um, no, but it's a good question. It's a good grown-up question. No, you do need to protect your team from demand, which is greater than they can easily um, fulfil. However, I think that's I think that's a good a good point. However, it is important to resist. I mean, if I'm rude about it, it, you know, and I love all the people I work with, um, and I genuinely do. I haven't always been able to say that about every single member of my team, but just at the moment, I can say that we have the best team and I love them all. Um, But the tendency to go, oh, we don't do that or we can't do that or... um, I I mean, okay, so the way I... You know, when I'm trying to raise money from... Uh, people or from foundations or from corporates or whatever, I or, or talking to my board. I've been saying the same thing. I mean, I must be pretty sick of hearing me say it now, but I've been saying the same thing for a long time, which is I, w- I want to do the crazy thing. We've got to do the crazy thing. I mean, the crazy thing is shorthand for um, uh, being true to the imagination of the artists that we work with. If we're going to work with the best artists in the world, then you've got to the, the deal is you come and work with us and we will enable you to make what you want to make. So I want to be able to do, I have to be able to do the crazy thing, but I want to do it next year and the year after that and the year after that as well. So I will also balance the books. I won't allow, or me and my team won't allow any one production or any two productions over the course of the year to put the financial security of the company at risk. We will find a way. We will take risks, but we will mitigate those risks. Um, and and I, I mean, it's why I argue that the artistic director, the person who's making the art should be the CEO, who's leading on making the art, should be the CEO because they got to take responsibility. They got to say, it doesn't work to say, you know, the old system is there's an artistic director whose job is to have great ideas. And then there's an exact director whose job is to say, well, we can't afford them. Um, th- that's just out the window. It should be. It's sort of creeping its way back in. It's an old Thatcherite idea that arts organisations need to be run by business people. They do need to be run by business people, but they need to be people whose business is the arts and understand risk. I mean, real business people understand risk, um, and we can learn enormous amounts from them. But 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 risk is the critical. The thing I've tried to do here is never repeat. Um, every show we make, we're doing something we've never done before. 
um, and I emphasize that we're, we're doing something we've never done before. We don't know how to do it. And it's because we don't know how to do it um, that it's worth doing. This seems a nice time for me to ask you a question about power, which is um, based on the uh, Labour politician Tony Benn's, his four questions on power, which I'd like to ask you. Go on then. Which is, Tony Benn says, first of all, what power have you got? And then he says, where did you get it from? Then he says, in whose interests do you exercise it? And then he says, and how can we get rid of you? Yeah. Well, you can get rid of me. Um, I mean, it's it, it, going backwards. Um, um, I'm easy to get rid of. Um, Where you're going? <laughs> I'm going. But I mean, over the period of time, I I, I could have been I could have been sacked. The board could have sacked me. Um, the board could have said uh, we don't have any confidence in what you're doing. Um, and the people I work with could have said the same thing. Um, we've lost confidence in you. We don't think you know what you're doing. Um, you should go. I mean, that I suppose is the advantage of. From from the board or from um, the team's perspective, of my having an open, you know, they didn't have to wait for three years. And oh well, look, it'd be gone in three years. At any point, they could say we've had enough. And I have ha- tried to run. I mean, th- thinking about it consciously, as people say, I've thought about the relationship to my board in that way. I will do the best I can, and if it doesn't work. Then you got to sack me. Then get rid of me. Get somebody else in. Um, um, if you know, if I if if it's not working sufficiently, well, sufficiently often, then I'm in the wrong person. Then get get somebody else. So it's um, easy e- easy to get rid of. Um, and that's God knows there are a lot of people who would like the job. So you know, I'm I'm easy to replace. What power have I got? I've got the. I mean, I've within this company, I have the power to make decisions about. Um, policy about direction, about and and in specifics about um, who we will work with, um, what shows we will do, um, the level of ambition. Um, um, they, I mean, I talk to people. I talk to people. I take advice within the company, outside the company. Um, I try to have a strong sense of what's going on in in other places within London, within. This country, in a few other parts of the world, um, so I, you know, so I hope to be realistic in that way. But, but I have taken those decisions. I've consulted with my exec directors, of whom I've had two principally over the period of time, um, with my marketing people, with the development people, with the production team, principally. Uh, is this achievable? Is it not achievable? And so on. But ultimately, the decision: yeah, we're going to do it, or we're not going to do it, has been mine and. In a company of this size, that feels to me correct. It's 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 you know if I'm wrong, then somebody else should do the job. What was the second? Question? The second one was where did you get your power? I got from? my power from the board. I mean, I'm employed by the board. Um, the board said we want we want you to do this, and um, and then you know uh, certainly from a, in terms of the financial controls within the company, it, it's very closely scrutinised, and I. Enormously welcome that, of course. Um, you want the best people giving you the best advice on what you're doing. I suppose, apart from that, um, my power also comes from the support I get from colleagues and, um, to be frank, other artistic directors. I mean, I think the fact that I've realized that people are interested in, in what we're doing here um, and support it um, also gives me I mean, it gives me power, if this is the correct word, to turn up in Amsterdam and talk to Ivo van Hove or turn up in um, 
Berlin and talk to people there. Um, it, you know, I've got I've got a certain, I, I've got a certain amount of resource available to me in terms of money and in terms of expertise and people's time, and so I can say, um, I am inviting you to come and do this, that, or the other. Um, I guess that's where my power comes from. What's the third the one? The third one was, in whose interests do you exercise this power? Yeah, well, good. I mean, good question. Um, and and uh, that's one that's probably best answered by other people. Um, I try to exercise that power in the interests of um, oh, a number of categories. I suppose um, the artists that we work with um, and I ultimately I make the decisions about which artists we work with so I'm selecting I'm going oh you know I want to use my power in your in your particular interests um, you know I say audience what the hell does that mean um, we've always had a strong focus on Southwark Lambeth um, but we just happen to be on the borders of those two boroughs um, and even in those two boroughs there's hundreds of thousands of people um, I don't know um, I try to I've tried to produce work at the Young Vic in such a way that anybody and I sort of mean anybody it's open to anybody you don't need any special knowledge or university education or I try to produce in such a way that it's emotionally intellectually available whether you're a 16 year old kid from one of the estates across the road or whether you're a professor of philosophy at UCL um, that 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 we're open to you. We want to talk to you. We want you to be part. So I guess it's in in the the interest of what you could call sort of wider society that I'm trying to make this these relationships between I'm just a broker relationships between between different sorts of theatre makers. I do see audiences as as you know people who participate in the making of the creating of the generating of the experience in the room, and I'm trying to do it on their behalf. I mean, I've earned. Um, a, a, a perfectly good salary over over the years. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm trying to earn a living um, at the same time. But I think, I mean, I'm happy to be challenged on this front. But I've tried to run the Young Vic so that I mean, it relates to how do you get rid of me? Um, um, I, I, you know, I mean, I'm in 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 many respects, it's easy for me. I mean, I have certain responsibilities, but I don't outside the theatre, but. I don't have children. Um, um, I don't have family, other family that I have. I, I you know, I, there are people I, um, I, I, I need to have, I need to be engaged with, but I don't have to support them financially. Um, not, not, not over the last twenty years anyway. Um, I, um, I have mortgage, but it's not a hugely demanding mortgage. Um, I've, I've only done what I felt was the right. Thing to do, and if it if it's the wrong thing to do, then um, then I should go. Um, and I've tried to I've tried to stay um, as light on my feet as now. David, when uh, it was announced that you were leaving, you had an interview with the Guardian where you said that you tried to leave three times in the past, but yeah. each time found an overwhelming reason to stay. Yeah. I wonder if you can tell us what those overwhelming reasons were. Oh, I mean, the, in the first instance, I mean, I, when we reopened the building in 2006, I thought, that was the first time I thought, okay, well, I've been thinking about it coming up to the opening, and I thought, 
You know, it's an interesting thing. Most people who've run theatres that have gone through capital projects, rebuilds of one kind or another, radical or partial, have left. They've, they've got to the end of that, and then they leave. Uh, why they do that, I don't know, but they have. Um, and when I was getting to the end of that, I was sort of thinking, yeah, well, maybe maybe I will. I've, maybe, I've, maybe I've expended all my energy on um, getting this thing to happen. Um, and that totally practical thing is that um, because we couldn't raise or didn't raise all the money that we wanted initially, we did this thing in effectively in two phases. We never talked about it in that way, but we effectively we did. Um, and I wanted to finish it. Um, I wanted I wanted to, I wanted to leave the theatre with um, all the resources needed in terms of well uh, at, the, at the time now of course I want more but um, at, at, at the time that we wanted and um, we need to raise another million and a half to do that and I thought okay I'll I'll stay I'll so, but that's a totally practical thing and I went okay I'll stay and I'll do that um, so I didn't leave in two thousand six and then um, the overwhelming reasons to stay were always. Um, a show or a, a, a something I wanted to do. Um, the thing that I got a bit um, exhausted by was I spent a lot of time raising money. Uh, I mean, I have a brilliant team, as you know, uh, brilliant development team, very good development council, which is very well run and chaired, with enormous energy and so on. But I spent a lot of time doing that as well, fronting things and looking for money, um, often to do shows or co-productions or whatever. Um, and um, I, there was a time when I got a bit exhausted by by that. Um, and I thought, oh, I don't want to go and do that. And then um, you find another source, you find a supporter or something else. You go, all right, okay, maybe it's not so bad. But mostly it's been the prospect of working with or working with particular people, working in a particular way. I mean, if I had left before, there's a whole lot of things we wouldn't have done, and I'd be, well, I wouldn't have known about them, because <laughs> we wouldn't have done them, but in retrospect, it would have been a pity not to have had the last two or three years. And I know you don't go in for this kind of thing, but please humour me, what would you like your legacy to be at the Young Vic? I don't go in for that. Kind okay. Of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that might be the answer. Um, I wonder if I can ask you what your highlights have been, though, or what shows you remember fondly the most oh, oh there are so many um there's so many i mean i i i it, i could it'd be easier to talk about <laughs> okay which ones did you hate no i said i'm gonna do that but it would be easier because there were fewer um i mean there were a few that i went oh i really screwed that up <laughs> um yeah i mean it's interesting with the ones that don't work of which there have been some of course um um, when the moment you go, oh, that, oh, why did I think that was a good idea? Um, and sometimes you can get in there and help, and sometimes you just can't. I mean, if something never was a good idea, then it never was a good idea. <laughs> um, but I mean, there are so many that we've done that I've just loved, and of many, many different different kinds. I mean, we we've, um, we did a musical called The Human Comedy. Um, which was completely crazy production because at a certain moment, no, it was it was it was um, it was street scene where we had a hundred people on stage, um, mostly professionals, but 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 choruses of local people. I mean, and I I've loved that. I've loved um, when we've been able to 
include professionals and non-professionals together in um, work of a certain standard. Um, uh, that's oh, I've I've always loved that. I remember that very well. And uh, the Human Comedy, uh, it was just a crazy musical nobody had ever heard of, um, <laughs> and I just loved it. And um, I thought the production we did, the John Paul James directed, was great. It was great. It was I great. ushered that show. I loved it. Yeah, I loved. Did you usher that mm. show? Yeah, I loved that show. I do this thing, crying me. I used to cry every night. <laughs> we didn't because it was such a big show uh, that we co-produced it with Watford, as I remember. Um, we didn't do. We couldn't do very many of them, but um, that was a pity. But that was that was a very good show. But uh, you know, um, completely different. I thought the Yon Fosse play we did, "I'm the Wind," that Sherrod uh, directed for us. That was amazing. It was amazing. A very, very, very challenging uh, experience working with Sherrod and his team and the uh, Vienna Festival and the Théâtre de Ville in Paris, who were our co-producers on that show. It was, you know, it's not it's not easy working with people who are accustomed to so much more resource, so much more money. Um, than than we have, um, but it was an amazing it was an amazing show. I loved that. Um, I know people, you know, it got a certain degree of recognition in London, but when it toured in Europe, it was um, fantastic experience. Um, so, but uh, but but there were there were many. I mean, I I, I love the measure of measure that we did um, more recently in that. Um, but you know, I mean, my fa- absolute favourite show is the one we just closed, which is the Jungle. Um, which was um, yeah, incredible, incredible experience. Um, uh, eighteen years, eighteen months, I suppose it was putting that together. Two years, maybe I don't know. Um, from from the first thought of it, which was um, a piece about the refugee the camp refugees in, in, in Calais. Calais. Um, yeah, the, the the refugee camp that was known as the jungle. Um, that uh, Joe Robinson, Joe Wright, Joe Robinson, and Joe Joe Wright, somebody else. <laughs> uh, Joe Robinson, Joe Murphy wrote. Um, but speaking of Joe Wright, I mean, the, the two shows that Joe Wright directed for us, uh, Season in the Congo and Galileo, they I love those shows. But, um, um, you know, Carrie, uh, Carrie Cracknell's um, Door-in-Law, um, Evo's uh, uh, View from the Bridge, um, Luke Bondi, when Luke did... Uh, well, actually, the first show that Luke did with us, Cruel and Tender, I, uh, it was it was the sort of beginning of, of working in that way, and the people, a lot of people thought, I don't really know what that is. Um, I, that was, I, I like that very much. I mean, I like it very, very much. Um, um, oh, all kinds of things. There's been, um, there's been a hell of a lot of them mm. over the years. And David, are you going to tell us what you plan to do next? Um, I've got have a, a lie down. I've got a meeting in about <laughs> half an hour, um, and I plan to have lunch. Um, and after today, I haven't a clue. <laughs> I haven't a clue. Well, on behalf of everybody that works at the Young Vic, you know how much we love you and we will miss you. And I've really enjoyed chatting to you this morning. Thank you so much for joining us for Off Book. Thank you, thank you, Daniel. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Off Book by the Young Vic. If you'd like to hear more conversations with some of the most exciting people in theatre, subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes.